This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jasran Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we're broadcasting Arab Talk from the apocalyptic zone in Northern California as you and I speak. People who may be watching on our various platforms may notice that the light is not as great as it usually is. It's it's a, almost noon in Northern California, but it looks like it's uh, almost six, seven, or eight o'clock at night. We have been experiencing major, what can I say, major conditions of weather here that have included it being very dark, ash falling all over Northern California, power shutoffs in various parts of Northern California, and fires that are st- still not fully contained. Yet we are going to continue to broadcast. Uh, from our locations uh, remotely. There's a lot of news, Jamal. This was not the best week in the world for Donald Trump. And uh, there's still a lot of fallout from the uh, Israeli-UAE arrangement. So a lot to talk about. I'm throwing it to you. Where shall we start today? Well, as you've mentioned, uh, Jess, Donald Trump is having a bad week. And the week is not over yet. No. A lot can happen. Yeah, and so a lot can happen. uh, But uh, basically, the big bombshell uh, has been is the Bob Woodward uh, book, which will be hitting the shelves in a few days. But uh, now it's making the rounds. Uh, We get a lot of excerpts and uh, we can listen to the interviews, the the sound recordings. Uh, and we can hear uh, Donald Trump saying, this is deadly stuff. Back in February 7th, talking about the coronavirus in the interview with the journalist Bob Woodward. And of course, I didn't mention the name of his book. It's, uh, the book is Rage. So uh, Bob Woodward conducted just 18 right. interviews with the president. right. right. And he gave him access to top of White House officials. So uh, this is over a stretch of time. And, and he was recording everything. Now, I have a different take on, on, on the book itself. Okay. okay because I have, I have my own take. And I've been listening to a lot of interviews, listening to the sound recordings, reading the excerpts. And I'm, I'm not very comfortable also... Uh, with Bob Woodward sitting on the information until right. September, right? And I've, 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 and now he's a little bit on the defensive, and no. people are, and 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 I know he's a very capable journalist, but also, I was thinking if it was me or you, and we had this information because so we would we let know, it out. We would let it out since February. I mean, this is this was his choice, and I know it was a big scoop for him. Do I, you know, save this big scoop until September, until I finish writing a book? Or knowing now, in retrospect, and that every single week that Donald Trump delayed taking action killed more people. And it's there a, is a whole study uh, done by Columbia University about right. this. Every it, single week of delay, not telling people to wear masks, uh, not to take, you know, you know, not to declare it as, as an emergency. And so, of course, 
that's my sense, at least, that Woodward, I think, should have just, he could have written the book now and could have just went to major media outlets and said, this is the information that I have. These are the recordings. The president knows the risks from the coronavirus, and he has been minimizing them to the American public. But Jamal, we, let me, all, we all remember this, right? Yeah, let me play devil's advocate, even though I, I agree with the most of what you said. Would it really have changed anything? Because even today and even yesterday, as these reports were coming out, uh, Donald Trump and his uh, Hasbara spin machine were able to continue to articulate a series of half-truths, mistruths, and outright lies about what happened. So my feeling is, even though I, I agree it was a difficult decision for Bob Woodward, no doubt, uh, you know, universally accepted as a, you know, among the most significant journalists of our era, of our time, um, that, that he sat on this, I'm not sure it would have changed a whole lot in terms of uh, the Trump policy, because what Trump said, which is really disgusting and disturbing, is that I didn't want to panic anybody. And let's say Woodward comes out with that before Trump comes out and says, I didn't want to panic anybody. In terms of the political consequences, it may not have changed anything. But in terms of the medical consequences, and this is where your point is spot on, it could very well have changed people's opinion about how serious it is. And, and if you read the Woodward and listen to the tapes, actually Donald Trump was briefed on this as early as January 2020, Jamal. He was briefed by the head of his national security office, O'Brien, who said, Mr. President, this virus is deadly. It will be the most significant and defining feature of your presidency, depending on how you um, on how you manage it. And he knew it was airborne. He knew it was serious. He knew it was deadly. And had the word gotten out, and I'm not talking politically, had the word gotten out early enough, we could have saved a lot of people's lives, Jamal, because people would have taken it much more seriously. So it's it's a pretty damning uh, uh, um, recording, to be honest. It was, it was probably the most damning. So here's where I'm going to throw something very controversial out. I'm not sure it changes the political calculation at all about the election. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. You you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, I was watching also Fox News and they were going yes. on the defensive. And now actually uh, I watched uh, uh, who who spoke about it. I think uh, Carson. Uh, Tucker Carlson? Yeah. yeah, Tucker Carson last night, uh, he was putting the blame on uh, uh, Lindsay uh, uh, because now we found out that he was he played a major role, uh, Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, in, in facilitating the interview with Donald Trump. So now he's saying, well, you know, maybe he wanted to set up uh, the president because number one question would be, and this is, uh, well, well, here it is actually. The Republicans and Trump supporters are more upset about Donald Trump sitting down with Bob Woodward, speaking with Bob Woodward, more upset than him knowing and about the dangers absolutely. and not notifying the general public. Absolutely. I mean, this is, 
This is how crazy. So, we, so with that in mind, I totally agree with you because <laughs> no matter what happens, these guys are in denial. Uh, they don't care even though, I mean, you listen to the recordings. Uh, Donald Trump says, yeah, it's so easily transmittable. Uh, you wouldn't even believe it. This no, is but, one of the court. But he said it was deadly. He said, and, it's, he said it was five times more deadly than the flu. Yes, yes. So, so, so this is Donald Trump saying that. So he's saying all this, and I, I don't want to panic people. You're telling me if you have a hurricane, uh, uh, you know, making its way to Florida or, or or somewhere, you won't tell the people. You don't want to panic them. You have a hurricane, whatever the the uh, uh, the largest hurricane ever uh, barreling. Uh, uh, towards Florida, you just tell people, stay put, don't do anything, you know, but uh, don't panic. Here's the analogy I use, Jamal. Your house is on fire. Donald Trump knows it's on fire, but he doesn't want to tell you because he's afraid you're going to panic if you know. The whole point of a leader and a whole point of being the president and the executive of the United States, your number one job is to protect the safety of the citizens and of the residents of the country that's your number one your number one priority your number one job description is to protect people he was derelict and catastrophically failed at the number one part of his job which is to protect americans from danger and guess what jamal people should have panicked in january people should have panicked in february if people panicked and got mass and stayed indoors and the and the economy was to close down the way it did back in february we would have had approximately half the number of deaths in the united states today as well, you have models. You have models. You, right. know, you look at the uh, at the Korean model. You look at other countries. I mean, we are leading uh, the way in the uh, number of uh, uh, people with the COVID nineteen. All the weeks, and I, I, I you know, and, and you probably know about this more than I do. Is uh, I looked at the Columbia University study right. saying right. that every single week would have made a difference uh, in thirty thousand to fifty thousand deaths early exactly. on and 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 that's that's huge you know when he just kept in denial and up to today i mean he's mocking uh biden for wearing a mask he's uh, asking a journalist to take off his his mask during interviews he has this obsession about being in denial and going uh, into rallies where no, people are sitting but, but a few inches it, from each other without but, wearing a mask. But I would argue a, a little slightly different point, Jamal. It's not that he's in denial. He actually knows how dangerous it is. This is willful putting people at risk for grave bodily injury, sickness, and death. So it's not that he denies it. He knows it. He was told by his national security team. He even told Bob Woodward how dangerous it was. This is, in my opinion, far more, far more damning and far more, you know, derelict and far more just really mean and aggressive toward people of this country, the our citizens and our 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 residents of this country to deny them information that could save themselves, save their families, save their children. So it's not that he's in denial, Jamal. This is something that's far more um far more evil than just being in denial. You could say, eh, 
the coronavirus, it's not that it's not that bad. That's denial. This is somebody who's calcula- calculated. He knows how dangerous it is. He's making a political calculation to continue to defraud and lie and misrepresent the information to people. And that's really the 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 calculation. Now I'm I'm putting it out there again, Jamal, and I'm saying this to you, I'm saying this to our listeners and our viewers, and I'm saying it to the Democrats. It may not have any bearing on the political calculus about how the election's going to go. I'm sorry to say this, Jamal, but even with this really catastrophic failure of leadership and this kind of evil. Let me add to the failure just that you're talking about because yeah. the people around him is, is just as cowardly. And, and, and culpable. Is, and culpable. And this is, yes, yeah. and this is what we're finding out actually from the interview because also part of the interview uh, we are finding out that, um, you know, um, top officials like General Jim Mattis uh, thought that he was dangerous. They said Absolutely. he was dangerous and considered speaking out publicly. But he did General General Mattis, you know, you know, remember him is uh, the former defense secretary. Yeah, but he didn't uh, speak out. And he was quoted describing Mr. Trump as dangerous and unfit for the presidency. And this is what the, in a conversation with Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence at the time. And Mr. Coates himself was haunted by the president's Twitter feed and believed that Mr. Trump's gentle approach to Russia reflected something more sinister. And so there is a whole kind of extra nuggets in, in, in the book. But basically, uh, these people like General Mattis opted to resign and, 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 and people who up watched him doing these destructive things, they, they were either let go or uh, they just they just resigned, well, but they didn't take action. Right, but you're right, Jamal. So the culpability extends to all of the people who knew this, including General Mattis, including General Kelly, including chiefs of staff, including the military, including the intelligence services, and let's not forget, including the bootlickers who are the senators and the congressmen and women uh, who continue to support the president's uh, efforts to mislead, misrepresent, and lie to the people of the United States, causing, and the model looks like, Jamal, that upwards of 400,000 Americans are going to die before the end of the year because of this failure. So not just Trump is culpable, the whole group of them is going to be culpable because even as of today, whether it's Tucker Carlson, it's uh, Lou Dobbs yesterday after this, you know, after all this information came out, he basically said, if you watched Fox, Jamal, which you do sometimes, Lou Dobbs said, it was a great week for the president. (laughs) Even though on Monday, another revelation came out, said that the president of the United States uh, disparaged the men and women of the military who lost their lives uh, in World War II, basically called them losers and suckers. Um, I mean, to 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 refer to whether or not you believe in, in war or against war or whatever, you know, to put on a uniform and to serve this country, you know, it's a big... Um, it's a big deal to do that, uh, to, to put your life on the line. And Absolutely. To, and, 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 to, and to call them losers and suckers because they were killed 
in World War II is is just morally bankrupt. And this and, is also in the Woodward interview, by the right, way. He, right. he, he, he used the same terminology. And of course, Trump denied it. Now, you know, and I was like looking at some of the campaigns that I've watched throughout the years. Yeah. And I'm like thinking, you know, remember Gary Hart? Right. He was running for president and he right. had one girlfriend sit on his lap and he was out. Out completely. And then, and then, uh, and then, um, uh, another uh, presidential candidate, he yelled loud and uh, he right. was out. Right. And then, and I was thinking, uh, if any candidate uh, denigrated the U.S. military and top generals, would would he or she would have no. been elected? No. no. But you are right that it seems that all these things are not making a dent that you need major compilation of issues. Yeah, but that's that's kind of my point, Jamal, is that I, I, I want our listeners and our viewers, and I want um, especially people who are campaigning for, you know, the Democrats or even the Green Party or anybody else to not rest on their laurels and to really see that this calculus, this, you know, that Trump has right now and all this horrible week, and there will be more terrible weeks, is not going to change, you know, the real possibility that he could win uh, a second term. So people need to kind of be aware of that, no matter how horrible the weeks, the week was this week, and it's not over, as you said, and however many horrible weeks he has in the future, it may not change things. So it's not going to change the calculus, and people need to really pay attention to this, that it's a sprint to the finish line for November for the elections, which they're going to continue to undermine in some significant ways. And it's really important for people to realize that no matter how many bad weeks Donald Trump has, no matter how many lies, no matter how many things he does, he still has a real chance of winning re-election. And people need to wake up with that because there's at least 40 to 43% of the population, Jamal, who don't care that he lied about the coronavirus. Well, there are, like I said, you, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, many things also in the book, you know, he, before that also, uh, you know, when asked about the pain black people feel in this country, Mr. He doesn't Trump buy it. was unable to express empathy. No, he doesn't he, believe he, it. He was telling, telling Bob Woodward that he drank the Kool-Aid, you yeah. know, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> the, the military, of course, we talked about, uh, talked about the military and now he's, de he's denying that. And oh, one thing, actually, I don't see a lot of things, a lot of reporting about this, a particular piece of the interview is that he divulged top secret. Right. He disclosed that secret a secret weapon system to Woodward. He, he and right. I have the quote. He said, "Here he's saying I have built a nuclear uh, weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before. We have stuff that you haven't seen or heard about." And then Woodward actually confirmed that. By right. the way, uh, from his by his sources. So, so for the very first time, we, the American people and the rest of the world, Russia and China included, now know 
that the United States has this top uh, secret nuclear weapon. So let's let's cut to the chase, Jamal. Let's do the political analysis really quick. Why do 43% of American still, no matter what Trump says, no matter what he does, no matter that he is going to crash the economy and cause people to die and get sick, and 500,000 children have been infected with the coronavirus that could have lifelong health problems, and it's and it's only going to get more because people are rushing back to school. It really comes down to his political calculation that he can stoke fear that brown and black people are going to, you know, gain political and economic power in this country. It's an appeal to white anxiety. It's an appeal to white supremacy. It's an appeal to the Southern strategy that Nixon had, that a lot of Republicans had, you know, after Eisenhower, if you want to look at the history of this in terms of how Republicans got um, elected either to the Senate or to the presidency, it has to do with stoking fear and anxiety in the white population that brown and black people are going to get empowered. And if you vote for Democrats, the cities are going to be on fire. That's basically what he said recently. And the economy would, would fail. Now, the reality... You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'll, I put this at the top of the of the pile, but I'll add to it. Yeah. There are three other things uh, on the that's uh, mostly on the evangelist uh, agenda. That that's basically his uh, base, right. and one of them is the Second Amendment. You know, right. that he keeps reminding them. You know, the Democrats are going if they get elected, uh, you're going to lose your Second Amendment. Right. Abortion rights. Right. The same thing about abortion. You right. know. Uh, he plays on that, and and last but not least, his support to Israel. Uh, that's also sure. And I would I would add uh, supreme on, on and judges list. and judges so, and yeah. judges. That's why he said so. So basically, they don't care. They don't as long as Donald Trump is gonna preserve that white supremacy and white power in the United States, because in their minds. The Obama years were the most horrific years witnessed in this country to have a black man in the White House. Well, they won't come out and admit it, but, but it's true. It's but that's the reality. True. And the it's other, not, yeah, go ahead. And then the other things is Second Amendment, abortion, let's support Israel, and you judges. Know, things like this. That's basically as long as he keeps saying these things. They don't care that people are dying. No, and they don't care that they don't care that the economy, you know. And, and I'm going to say maybe some, making some people on Wall Street rich, but it's not making them rich. And 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 it's and I'm sorry to say this, Jamal, but I believe that it's actually more than 43 percent of Americans probably want Trump to be reelected, regardless of what the polls say, regardless of what Biden, Harris, Democrats, and other progressives say. We have never fully gotten over the original sin that this country was founded on, which is slavery and the massacre of indigenous communities. We've never gotten over that. You know, the people in, you know, after our civil war in this country in which, you know, the, the Confederacy, the, you know, the Confederates, they lost. They have never kind of come to terms with that. The long-term 
220, 240 plus years of the building of this country on slavery and, and massacres of indigenous communities. We, there, there's still holdouts from that, Jamal, people who refuse to accept you know, that original sin that this country was, was born on. And the fact that, you know, in the Civil War, the Union won and the Confederacy lost. Many people haven't accepted that yet in this country. People are going to really take offense at what I say, Jamal. I know that. But, you know, in reality, there's a lot of anxious white Americans out there, full stop. Well, uh, there's a couple of things before we move on, because we have an interview uh, with uh, our guest, uh, David Michaelis. Uh, uh, the Michael Cohen, of course, uh, right. uh, spoke yesterday on CNN. He has his book. And Michael Cohen says that Trump is not joking about staying in office for more than two terms. He's not he says, joking. He said Donald Trump believes that he should be the ruler, the dictator of the United States yeah. uh, of America. He actually is looking to change the Constitution. When Donald Trump jokes about 12 more years, he's not joking. Donald Trump does not have a sense of humor. That's what Cohen said. And I'm like listening to him and I say, I think he's right. Of course what he's do you right. Think? Of course he's right, Jamal. I mean, who who knows Donald Trump better than Michael Cohen, his fixer, who did all these immoral, illegal things in order, he, as he said, to t he would even take a bullet. And listen, this is no joke. This is why I think, I don't think Donald Trump's in denial, Jamal. I think the Democrats are in denial because Michael Cohen is right. This guy is not going to leave. He's not going to leave easily, even if he loses the election, because he's already planted the seeds for people, especially, you know, the 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 kind of, you know, white supremacy movement and the white part of America in the South that is so anxious right now. He's planted the seeds that no matter the outcome, if he loses, that it was a rigged election. He says that almost every day. Mail-in voting. He also unleashed on the president saying that he's a cheat, a liar, a fraud, a bully, right. a racist, and that's all a true. predator, and, and a con man. And it's not going to matter. That's, that's the real crazy thing. And it's not going to matter in terms of, you know, the political calculation. That's why I'm, I'm kind of jumping up and down and screaming at people, don't pay attention to the polls. The polls don't really matter. You know, what really matters is going to be what happens on that day and enough people coming out and voting. Well, last but not least, uh, this is on the funny side, uh, Bin Laden's niece endorsed Trump. Well, that's a that's a great that's a great and that's a really that's a really great endorsement, Jamal, don't you think? She's she's a Swiss born Bin Laden. Um, basically, she's the daughter of Carmen Dufour, a Swiss author, and uh, Islam bin Laden, uh, a, the older half-brother of Osama. Uh, and uh, this was published. I, I, I thought it was funny. Uh, like it came with everything else. I said, oh, now this is the coveted in endorsement that Trump must be is seeking, you know, uh, the, uh, the headline in the New York Post that bin yeah. Laden's niece yeah. endorsed him. Yeah, of course. And... Um I mean, if if Bin Laden were alive still, he might endorse Trump too. You know, <laughs> to be honest. 
Hey, Jamal, You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And, and just uh, so we... Uh, we I just... Had, uh, I know. I, want, I know we're going to talk about David's interview you had with David. It was just great. But I, I have to just say this before David's interview. I, I'm so disgusted by the coverage of uh, the UAE-Israeli rapprochement and peace agreement and the signing ceremony next week. It's making me nauseated, but I just had to put that out there. I'm really sick about it. Well, that's what's going to happen next week. So let's uh, listen uh, to David's interview who actually talks about this. And he talks about how uh, pretty much uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a cat with nine lives, that every time he comes with something to kind of keep him, even though he's also is under uh, major attack uh, uh, and criticism in Israel because of, by the way, a major spike in coronavirus, uh, both cases and deaths, right. uh, which puts actually Israel as the number one now in these cases per capita right? since, since the beginning of September. And yet this came as a big bailout, uh, you know, which is the UAE has bailed out Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu, Netanyahu. Yes. and he and uh, he's going to come to the White House uh, next week with, uh, of course, the UAE, and they're going to have this ceremony. I don't know, like we talked about it last week, if if it's going to be attended by other Arab countries or not. But nevertheless, they- they're going to make a big deal out of it. This past weekend, thousands of Israelis protested outside the official residence of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pressing ahead with a months-long campaign demanding he resign. Demonstrators have been protesting against Netanyahu's handling of the coronavirus crisis, which has led to soaring unemployment and believe he should step down while on trial for corruption charges. The Israeli government moved quickly to contain the coronavirus, but bungled the reopening of the economy and now finds itself dealing with a stronger outbreak. The death toll has passed 1,000. Israel has more than 26,000 active COVID-19 cases. And Netanyahu has dismissed the protesters as leftists and anarchists. But this tough talk and even a series of foreign policy accomplishments have done nothing to deter the crowds. Joining us to discuss these stories and more, veteran Israeli journalist and my former colleague, David Michaelis. Welcome again to Arab Talk, David. Thank you. I would um, love to participate in your program. So uh, it seems that Netanyahu is like a cat with nine lives. Every time people think that his time is up, he manages to survive. But now things are pretty bad in Israel with COVID-19. Uh, In fact, Israeli media outlets reported on Friday that Israel now leads the world in the daily COVID-19 infection rate per capita. Uh, The morbidity rate has accelerated the fastest, uh, like it has increased 57% or 2,202 new cases per day. How badly is this affecting Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, it's affecting him badly, but as you said that he has nine lives, he still controls the majority 
through his manipulations because the right-wing part of Israeli population is basically a steady majority and the left part of Israeli politics is in constant minority. So the 20,000 or so demonstrators are a good show of force, but definitely not enough to topple him. And uh, basically with uh, COVID-19, there is a total anarchy of different policies colliding and um, Israel has lost its uh, power to organize a real response to COVID-19. So that's why it's now number one in the world in cases per day per million. So uh, you think this is kind of similar to the United States uh, with Donald Trump being in denial that he also bungled dealing with the COVID-19 and we have now over 6 million people infected here, but then he says, I'm doing a great job. We're doing a great job. Do you think this is the attitude? Are, are Israelis buying uh, the answers from Netanyahu? No, they're definitely not buying it. And there's a rebellion uh, against uh, lock-up new instructions that they just issued for 20 what they called red cities and neighborhoods. So people even don't want to obey the new instructions. So uh, it's similar to the U.S., but uh, in the way that both uh, Trump and Netanyahu are trying to get credit for totally mismanaged policies that are actually uh, not stopping uh, in any way similar to Europe or to Asia, not stopping the virus from spreading. So the other thing also, uh, of course, I see in the Israeli media uh, since the... uh so-called peace agreement with the UAE, right? Uh, On Friday, Serbia and Kosovo gave Israel a diplomatic boost. uh, As Serbia announced, it would move its embassy to Jerusalem, and Kosovo said it will establish ties with Israel with an embassy in Jerusalem. How big is this? I mean, how big is this for Netanyahu to kind of shift the world's attention from the economy, the high unemployment, the high rate of death rate of, from the COVID-19 to basically say, look what I got you. Well, on the 15th of September in Washington, just been announced, there'll be a big uh, uh, photo op opportunity of the signing with Trump and the uh, Sheikh who re- leads the AU. EU and uh, uh, Netanyahu, and they try to make it a big achievement that will distract from everything else because it's the first peace agreement uh, for many years, and uh, they're celebrating it as if it's um, a huge change for the Middle East, which um, I don't know if it will be a huge change, but it will be a huge photo opportunity. Uh, it, it definitely will be a photo op- 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 
opportunity, the question is, opportunity, the question is, who's going to be in that photo? Uh, is Benjamin Netanyahu coming to the White House? Sure. Uh, uh, is Gantz coming to the White House? Who's going to be uh, waiting in the wings, I guess, to become prime minister? Uh, I mean, that's that's what uh, he has his sight on, right? And then, and then, who else they have invited besides the UAE? Because uh, there is kind of shuttle diplomacy that has been happening with Jared Kushner trying to convince the Saudis and other. Uh, leaders from the Gulf and perhaps uh, Sisi from Egypt and King Abdullah from Jordan to attend. But so far, I haven't seen any buyers uh, yet to that photo op. Well, I, I don't know, except for the leaders of these countries who will be in the photo op, but uh, definitely I think the Palestinians are uh, not in this photo op and they are... Um, in need of rethinking a lot of their relations to some of the Arab world um, strategy because it's, it is a reality that uh, the U.S. and Israel succeeded to put the Palestinians on the non-priority list to deal with their issues. So I think there must be some kind of rethinking and and you you know you and I did a film called Occupied Minds. I think the situation now is that the Israeli and Palestinian sides are closed minds, and uh, and both sides are not ready to do any kind of change. And there's total loss of trust, and uh, there must be some kind of new strategies and opening of minds because uh, this big agreement is not helping at all the situation on the ground. Well, the, the, the agreement, it seems to me, I mean, from the, an Israeli perspective, uh, and uh, it's a bailout to uh, Bibi Netanyahu because last time you and I, we talked about the annexation. Nothing happened with the annexation. And all the hoopla that was made about the annexation did not materialize. So it kind of disappeared. And then all of a sudden, the UAE steps in under the pretext that they want to prevent that annexation. But in fact, they're giving Benjamin Netanyahu a way out. Uh, yeah, they, they do give him a, a credit for his policy of no territory for peace, but peace for peace. That's his slogan. I give you peace, you give me peace. And in this case, it's uh, advanced, uh, very advanced weapons from the U.S. for agreeing to make um, this, these relationships official. So he definitely uh, deserves credit for moving away from the real issue on the ground with Palestinians. He, succeeds to move the gateposts, as they say. They, he succeeds to um, distract and make a whole new uh, priority list, which is his Iran slogan. It's all about Iran. Forget the Palestinians, it's all about Iran. That's basically his strategy. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the UAE never had any hostilities between it and Israel. It's not like the UAE has posed has ever posed a threat to Israel or even shares a border with Israel. And and mm-hmm. so for me, uh, like you make a peace agreement, right? You make a peace agreement with an enemy. Enemy. The UAE was never an enemy. It's not even near Israel. And now all of a sudden, you're right. They're now saying that now, you know, we have this peace agreement and now we can all be in the same uh, partnership confronting Iran. Sure. And that's uh, like creating a parallel universe, I would say, that uh, Middle East has new priorities. And uh, forget the issues on the ground, which Israel doesn't want to relate to. But uh, I think also my impression is, I'm not a Palestinian, but I have a feeling the Palestinians need to reconfigure how they deal with it. You've mentioned this twice, and I know you wrote me about it. Uh, What's your suggestion? I mean, when you say you reconfigure, uh, I mean, for some, they will say... We tried everything. We tried war with the Israelis. We tried peace with the Israelis. We've had a peaceful uh, intifada, the first intifada demonstration with the Israelis. Uh, we've signed an ag- agreements, uh, the Oslo, uh, with uh, international yeah. guarantees, and the Israelis have not met any of these. What's next? Um well, to use your term, you know, you said that Palestinian Israelis are in a situation of a scrambled egg and it can't be unscrambled. So there, there must be a way that coexistence will happen. It's, it can't be the only place in the world where coexistence cannot happen. So if, if on the 3rd of November, Netanyahu will lose his partner, I hope, uh, Mr. Trump, that's already part of of uh, a, a new change situation uh, because his partner is uh, not doing anything for real peace. So um, maybe the third of November could be uh, a point of change. I'm not sure, but maybe. <laughs> well, I think you're more optimistic than me about it because. Uh, knowing the policy and the political background of Biden, uh, I mean, Biden is very pro-Israel. Uh, yes, they have uh, ideological differences. Uh, you know, it's not like I feel Trump and Kushner, it's, uh, they're dealing with Israel as a family affair. You know, it's not even political. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that whole group. Um, they have one set of ideas. Biden is more of a politician, but he is known in the circles to be very pro-Israel. In fact, he he bragged to say that he's a Zionist. So, I mean, uh, what more than this do you need or more evidence that he is not going to do anything that differently than Trump? Well, I I think that, uh, as you said, I don't think Biden will see it as a family affair. And I think he might be maybe open to um, more international collaboration. For example, I'll give you, if Biden will say that Obama was correct to do the agreement with Iran and he will be ready 
to talk to Iran in a different way, that's already changing the equation. Iran then is not the amazing monster Satan from from uh, from hell. <laughs> so already, if he changes his position on Iran, uh, that is a change in the equation. So I think you you can't say that there is no change. I don't, I don't think I know your pessimism is grounded, but I don't think that 3rd of November, nothing will happen. I, I, I think um, um, uh, there will be some change. I don't know which one, but uh, even if he says he's Zionist, he will have more international outlook and more international collaboration, and the European will be more in the picture, and uh, I think... Uh, he might have different priorities, or I'm sure he'll have different priorities. Biden. Well, this is assuming that he w- that Biden will win. I'm not so sure. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm more pessimistic than usual. Uh, I'm not writing out with everything. I mean, it should be a done deal with having uh, watched several uh, U.S. presidential elections with a bad a combination of a bad economy with. Uh, Almost 200,000 Americans now dead because of, of uh, the COVID-19, yeah. that it should be a done deal for Trump uh, to lose. But he is not the typical candidate, and we are in a whole different kind of atmosphere that I would not be surprised if he does not get reelected. I will not be basically surprised. I um, I'm betting on Biden, and uh, what can I say? Um, <laughs> like any bet, I could be losing this bet, but uh, no, no. I mean, yeah, Biden could, but I'm just saying, don't write out Trump, and yeah, then if yeah. Trump is in office, uh, and now he has nothing to lose, uh, and so if you if he's done. The damage that his, he had he has done in four years. Imagine how the the next four years will look like. I I don't want to imagine that because <laughs> it's like out of a very bad um, nightmare. <laughs> so you yeah. mentioned the Palestinians kind of needs to change their strategy, and you've talked about that before, and you and I talked about it really. Yeah, and and it seems, uh, I mean, all these talks are useless and brings us back to the strategy to say, well, you know, uh, this is a scrambled egg situation. You can't separate the two people and go back to the one state option that people don't want to believe that that it is available to say, okay, you don't want to you don't want to set the Palestinians free and give them their own state. Well, consider them citizens of the state. Why is this paranoia? I mean, you already Israel already has 1.8 million uh, Arabs uh, citizens uh, or Palestinians with Israeli yeah. citizenship. You know, maybe this number is going to jump to. Five million, and because you, after all, you want the West Bank. Benjamin Netanyahu wants the West Bank. Let's let's kind of, uh, kind of uh, play games with this. He has 
the population, the settlers' populations, 800,000 settlers. Eventually, there'll be a million. And he directly or indirectly controls what's going on in Gaza by air, land, and sea. And so drop the whole fantasy about splitting the country. Yeah, I uh, think uh, that for many Israelis, this is also a nightmare to give Palestinians all the citizenship rights. So um, there must be some kind of uh, federation uh, possibility uh, option of creating an equal federation, which um, some uh, movements have have mentioned as an option. Um, I don't know. I don't know, but the one state also um, seems to be um, not a realistic way of of uh, seeing a future solution. So, so how um, do you, how do you describe the situation now? I mean, the current situation. I mean, I see more and more Israelis. They are not yeah. shy anymore to describe it as an apartheid. Uh, Condition. Yeah, it's definitely an apartheid and a dead end of of uh, opening the minds to other other ways of giving rights to the Palestinians. There must be other ways to give full rights uh, to Palestinians and and to divide the territory also in a in a way that uh, might be very difficult for many settlers, but there must be a solution. It, there can't be a situation that there is no, no map that, that will not be um, drawn, that cannot be drawn. There must be a map that can be drawn. And uh, Well, we saw the map that uh, Trump came up with. And yeah, that's not a map. The, uh, the, the Bantu stands that they created... Yeah, that's a Bantustan map, right. Well, I mean, I don't see a map there with 800,000 plus settlers. Yeah. Uh, I don't see a map there with Gaza is just like an enclave surrounded by, uh, you know, landlocked basically by Israel. And yeah. that's why we keep going back. And it's been 10 years since we've been on the ground, right? Uh, yeah. Working on the film. Oh, more, 15 years. 50, sorry, 50, 50, yeah, time flies, 15 years. Yeah. And and that was, we are asking the same questions, uh, the same questions before. And, it, the, and, and, and the situation has not improved. And I keep coming back and I say, unless Israel has plans to deport all Palestinians, from all over historic Palestine, they're stuck with the Palestinians, and the Palestinians are stuck with them. And how far can they keep pushing or hiding behind the mirage that they are a democratic state? Yeah, they're hiding quite well, but uh, it's also inside Israel. Many are doubting that... um, this anarchy that you see right now is uh, 
is a democratic way of going even about internal affairs. Many Israelis think that it's um, uh, hardly a, a democratic um, structure. It's, it's falling apart, the structure. So, I don't know, there must be some kind of political earthquake of leadership that um, a leadership that will have a look at different ways of of talking and approaching the issues because everyone there is stuck in slogans. Well, um, I want to thank you again for coming on Arab Talk and yeah. uh, and hopefully we keep continuing this con- conversation and yeah. not getting stuck in slogans yeah. and find okay. some sort of a, a solution to this yeah. uh age-old problem. Right. Okay, thank you for your talk. Well, that's the, that's the face and the voice of David Michaelis. And I have to tell you, Jamal, every time David uh, comes on the show, I enjoy his analysis. I think, you know, this is someone who worked in uh, the media, uh, the Israeli media for a long time. He lived there for a long time. He kind of knows the ins and outs. And I think his analysis is, you know, it seems like Netanyahu has more than nine lives because there have been demonstrations in the streets every single night. I don't know for how many weeks now. So I, David seems pretty spot on. Yeah, he's spot on. Also, uh, pretty much also said uh, what we have been saying that the sadly the Palestinians, and he was meaning by the Palestinian Authority and government, that they have to change their tactics. Right. They have been repeating the same things over and over and just uh, expecting different results. And those and they've been failing at every single move they've tried with Benjamin Netanyahu and and the people before him. Well, it's a sad day. And uh, I I'm really curious to see who shows up at the White House, if the Jordanian ambassador shows up or the king if the Egyptian ambassador shows up or the president, LCC, who from the Gulf is going to show up, what level of representation. You know that your your friend Jared Kushner is going to be strong-arming to get as many House Arabs to be at the White House next week as possible. Yeah, well, hey, they, they're now uh, pitching for a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, Trump. Well, he was nominated, yes. And he was nominated by a Dutch, I think. Uh, white supremacist, uh, yeah. White supremacist, uh, but he's a member of the parliament. So? Uh, I mean, I'm just saying. That yeah. They consider this an official nomination. It's not yes. like someone from the streets. Uh, and this is his dream. It, 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 it always bothered him how Obama uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize. It bothers me also, like why they actually gave it to Barack Obama. But that's a different issue. Yeah, that's a different issue. Okay, well, we've, we've come to another close of Arab talk, it seems, Jamal. That's right. Uh, and so uh, we will talk to you all next week. Go to our uh, website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest podcast. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We'll see you next week. <laughs>